Hey, Rockbridge, my name is Matt, one of the pastors on our team and all six of our locations. Those of you watching online, so excited, so glad that you're with us. We are returning to our crown series, which is walking through the story of David and Saul in 1 Samuel. Be in chapter 25. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn it on, open it up. You can, of course, follow along with me on the screens uh, near you. So thank you again for being here. And we've just come out of an incredible season of really intentionally slowing down to actually seek the Lord. And we've learned that, gosh, when we slow down, God shows up, which really tells us God's always there. What's lacking is our awareness to pursue him, sense him, and fellowship with him. So we praise God for this season. However, the challenge, and 1 Samuel 25 is going to help us with this challenge. The challenge is when we have these moments or these times in our lives where we know that we know that we know God is there, God is real, God is good, God is awesome, God is amazing. We have these moments like we've experienced with Sacred Assembly. How does it then affect the real world? Yeah, yeah, because it's easy Sometimes when, when, man, everybody's doing it, everybody's in sync, we're in church, man, we're in our small groups, we're in the Bible, we're in the Word of God. It's easy to love our Christianity, love our faith, be alive to God, be fired up, be excited. But then the real world happens, problems happen, uh, difficult relationship situations emerge, money is tight, uh, temptation is real, and then how does our faith with God, when we're on the mountaintop with God, how does it affect us in the real world when it is challenging and, and we have to deal with situations or deal with difficulties or go through suffering or go through adversity? How does Christianity work then? How, how does it work? How do we go from, man, God is good, to the real world? which is broken and which is fallen and which has adversities and challenges and sufferings. And, and like, if you're like not a Christian and you're here, one, we're so glad that you're here seeking and, and, and you got questions and we're just honored by your presence. But you're sort of like, you, you might have this dynamic, you might meet this dynamic this way. Like Christians, man, we're, are, we're, you, call, you would say maybe we're hypocrites because here at church, man, we're seeking God, seeking God. But in the real world, we don't look like Christians. And so you have a problem with that and, and you should. And so we're going to wrestle with that in the life of David in 1 Samuel 25. 1 Samuel 24 ended with David showing incredible self-control and incredible restraint. He doesn't kill his enemy Saul because he knows that would violate God's way. And then his enemy Saul says, now I know for certain you'll be king. He gets this assurance, hey, God's with you. You're going to be the king of Israel and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. And Saul goes back home and David, his men go back up to the stronghold. So he has this mountaintop moment where, man, he, he resisted temptation. He's this mountaintop moment where his own enemy says, you're going to win. You're going to get what God has promised. It's kind of like sacred assembly, right? God's real. God's here. God's present. God's amazing. And then the real world in 25. Samuel died. His mentor, so to speak, his spiritual advisor, Samuel died. And there's more that's going to happen, but Samuel died. And all Israel assembled to mourn for him, and they buried him by his home in Ramah. And David went down to the wilderness of Paran. 
And there's just an overarching truth I think we all have to understand in this tension between the highs, sacred assembly, the highs, God is, we know that God is here and God is real and God is amazing and the real world stuff where bad things happen and good, bad things happen to good people and, and, and adversity happens and difficulties happen is this, that we can't expect a broken world with broken people to satisfy us. And that's why we have to seek the Lord like we just did in the sacred assembly. We can't expect that because a broken world filled with broken people is always going to disappoint us. For some of you right now, this is the challenge in your marriage because you're expecting your spouse who lives in a broken world and is, and is himself or herself a broken person, a sinful person, a leaky person uh, to satisfy you. And, and, and nobody can fulfill that expectation. We find that in the Lord. And so right here, we just got to keep that truth in mind as we seek to understand how does our faith show up in the real world and affect our lives in the real world with brokenness and challenges. Now, David's challenges get even more pronounced. A man in Mayan had a business in Carmel. He was a very rich man, 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats. He's shearing his sheep in Carmel. The man's name was Nabal and his wife's name, Abigail. So we get introduced to two people, Nabal and Abigail. The woman was intelligent and beautiful, but the man, a Calebite, was harsh and evil in his dealings. Difficult people, difficult world, right? While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So David sent 10 young men instructing them, go up to Carmel, and when you come to Nabal, greet him in my name. Then say this, long life to you and peace to you and to your family and peace to all that is yours. I hear that you are shearing. When your shepherds were with us, we did not harass them, and nothing of theirs was missing the whole time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. So what David is saying is, hey, hey while we've been in your area, we have sort of had a, we've been protecting you and your interests. We haven't taken advantage of anybody, and David's the military guy, so he's got power of the sword and that kind of presence. But David's like, man, you've benefited from our presence being around your, your flock and, and your, your assets, so to speak. So let my young men find favor with you, for we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have on hand to your servants and to your son David. David's young men went and said all these things to Nabal, on David's behalf, and they waited. And then Nabal's going to make his reply. Who is David? Never heard of him. Who is Jesse's son? Many slaves these days are running away from their masters. Am I supposed to take my bread, my water, and my meat that I butchered for my shearers and give them to these men? I don't know where they are from. So David's men retraced their steps, and when they returned to him, they reported all these words. Real world, right? Difficult people, not doing what you think they should do, not gratitude, difficult situations. Nabal in our lives. And it's not just limited to difficult people. It, sometimes the difficulty is, is, a, is a disease. Sometimes the difficulty is financial, but it's just the real world. And so how does sacred assembly, God is real, God is good, God is great, how, how does it affect the real world? How, how does it show up then? How do we respond to this Nabal situation? Well, here's where David goes. He says to his men, verse 13, he says to his men, all of you put on your swords. 
uh, we're going Braveheart, right? Put on your swords. So each man put on his sword. David also put on his sword. About 400 men followed David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. And so immediately what has happened from 20, chapter 24, the story there, to where we are in, at this point in chapter 25, is David has moved from faith, God is good, God is guiding, God is with me, God is for me, to the flesh. And I, and I would say that happens to us a lot. I mean, I've, I, I'll, just, I'll go first in this kind of time of confession. You know, I'll have this amazing time with God, you know, in the Word, journaling, whatever I'm doing. And, and man, and in my spirit, God's communing with me. God's real, God's good, God's great, yes. A, a minute later, a text message later, an email later, or I'm in a situation and I'm not looking anything like Jesus in front of my wife or in front of my boys or in our church setting or whatever. And, and I know some of you, man, I mean, you work and, and you don't work around a lot of Christians and you're like, man, how do I deal with all this? How do I fit into all this? It's real world stuff. And man, my Sunday was great and sacred assembly was awesome and God is good and God is amazing. And then the real world shows up and, and it's almost like the only thing we know to do is live in the weird real world by our flesh and leave our faith on Sundays or leave our faith in those seasons, Christmas, Easter, sacred assembly, that kind of thing. And so that's the tension. And we just see David make that switch from faith to flesh real quick. Now, let's be sure we all understand what I mean by flesh. Here's a great definition. Any human action taken, any attitude we adopt or achievement made without dependence upon God and without an eye toward hallowing of his name as we've been praying the Lord's Prayer this past week. Okay, and that's where David is. Let's go kill Nabal and his guys because he insulted us. He was not grateful for our protection and didn't give us a meal. Now, it's clear David has a problem. Just like you and I could say, man, we got real world problems, real world situations that just kind of aren't great. And how, how does your faith work in that? And a lot of us, I don't know that it does work. Let's bring out a sword, right? But the problem is not Nabal. And this is so key for us, church. It's so key for us to understand the problem is not Nabal. David's problem is David. Matt's problem is Matt. How my flesh wants to react, wants to respond to real world problems. Now, what causes this switch from faith to flesh? What causes us from the sacred assembly type high or the Easter weekend, God is, Jesus is alive high, to the next day, the next conversation, the next text message, the next thing we post on social media. We don't look like Christians. We don't think like Christians. Our attitudes aren't Christ-like. We're not operating according to the word of God. We're just going with what we think we need to do by our flesh. What causes that? I got a couple of usual suspects to share. First one is blind spots. I mean, just like when you're in your car and you have to have mirrors or somebody say, hey, is it clear left, is it clear right? Uh, we all have blind spots. And a, a, another way to think of a blind spot is just there's areas where we lack self-awareness. Like we don't know that we've even crossed from faith into the flesh because we've just always responded this way. We've always gotten angry. We've always gotten defensive. We've always let our pride lead us. We've always been greedy and we just don't even see it. So we have blind spots, okay? And, and, and that's certainly possible for David. 
Another one is like we, a lot of us live with the secular, secular sacred divide, right? Or, or we compartmentalize like our, our faith is for Christian days, like Sundays, like sacred assembly, like Christmas and Easter. We'll pull our faith out in the hospital. Or we'll pull our faith out in the funeral home. But our faith doesn't work at work. Our faith doesn't work in our relationships. Our faith doesn't work in how we handle conflict. Then we just got to go with the flesh. Another reason this switch happens is we ignore the clear commands of God and or godly counsel. We just ignore it. And it could be a combination of those. Now, a big question, though, we wrestle with is when, when, when these kind of naval situations pop up, real-world stuff pops up, where's God? And then, and then how does God work in the real world? Those of us who participated in sacred assembly, we know how he works when we seek him through his word, through fasting, through prayer, through prayer meetings, <coughs> through, through worship services. We know how God works then or have a, a, a little bit of a better idea maybe after you've participated in this with us. But in the real world, with real people, with real problems, how does God work? We've, we've been praying it all week, right, Lord? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, how do you answer that prayer? And there's a reason some of you are not following Jesus right now or your faith has grown stale because that's where you're stuck with God. Well, the word of God would tell us a couple of things. First, he does not keep the navels away from us. Didn't keep them away from himself or didn't keep him away from Jesus. Remember, Jesus had to deal with Judas Jesus had to deal with disciples who left him in his moment of greatest need. He doesn't keep Nabal's away from us, but, but he does make provision. Let me say it this way. God has a way to deliver us from the evil within us. He makes provision. Now, here's the key thing, church. God is not going to make us but he will make a way for us. So God is going to make a way for us to live in the real world with him and in communion with him, but he's not going to make us choose that path. David put on his sword, but God is going to make a way for David, and we're gonna see that right now. The New Testament would say it this way. The grace of God has appeared, the gospel, Jesus Christ, bringing salvation for all people. And this grace of God more than, does more than keeps us out of hell, does more than causes us to have forgiveness of sin. It also instructs us to deny, say no to, godlessness and worldly lust and live a different way in the real world, in a sensible, righteous, and godly way, in the present age, that's the real world, brokenness, problems, difficulties, nables. While we wait for the blessed hope, the, which is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So at some point, Jesus is going to come back and, and make all the bad stuff go away, right? He gave himself for us, Jesus, to redeem us from lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, <coughs> excuse me, eager to do good works in the real world. So God will make, not make us, but he will make a way for us to stay in close fellowship with him, even in the real world, 
even among the Nabal situations, even through cancer, divorce, difficulty. God will make a way for us to stay in fellowship with him. So here's, let's translate it to where we are in the life of our church. We have come from a two, three week season of seeking God. We don't have to lose that fellowship, that communion where we sense God is real even as we do life in the real world with real people and real problems and real brokenness and real temptation and real evil and real sin and, there's, and that problem's in us too and God will make a way so we can stay tight in fellowship with him. How does God do that? How does God make a way? He doesn't get rid of the Nabals. So God, how do you work? Verse 14. One of Nabal's young men who remains nameless in the story, though he's a critical link in the story. One of Nabal's young men informed Abigail, Nabal's wife said, hey, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, Nabal, but he screamed at them. The men treated us very well. When we were in the field, we weren't harassed and nothing of ours was missing the whole time we were living among them. They were a wall, they were a wall around us both day and night the entire time we were with them herding the sheep. His men kept us safe. His men protected us. Now consider carefully what you should do because there is certain to be trouble for our master and his entire family. He is such a worthless fool, nobody can talk to him. David's mad. David has put on his sword because of the evil or the obstinance of Nabal, and we're all going to pay a price unless something happens. Now, here's the cool thing. Obviously, God, or obviously, <clears throat> this young guy lets Abigail know, and she's going to be a key player in the story. So what are, how does God make a way for us to stay close with him? Four ways that are going to come out in this story. The first one is the workings of God's providence. And providence is closely connected to how God provides for his people in the real world. You know, providence, we could call it, some people call it coincidence. Some people call, you know, it happenstance, but it's God working. And so God's going to make a way for David. David doesn't know all this is going on. The servant is not even named. We don't even know his name. We just know he's a servant. But underneath all that, God is working to do something so David does not get lured into the evil that's working in his own heart. So we have to know something. God is always working, and we don't even know half of what he's doing. But he's always working to make a way for us as our provider, as the one who will deliver us from evil. He's always working so we can stay in close fellowship, communion, intimacy, tightness, whatever you want to say, with him. So Abigail gets this information and she knows she's got to act. So she hurries along, takes 200 loaves of bread, two clay jars of wine, five butcher's sheep, a bushel of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on the donkeys. She's prepared. This lady's good in the kitchen, right? She's ready to go. Then she said to her male servants, go ahead of me. I will be right behind you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. As she rode the donkey down a mountain pass, hidden from view, she saw David and all his men coming toward her and met them. Now, the author stops with Abigail and the scene changes and we're gonna zoom in to what's going on with David. How's David doing? 
David had just said, I guarded everything that belonged to this man in the wilderness for nothing. He was not missing anything. I did this guy, I did no wrong by this guy. Yet he paid me back evil for good. This is the way of the world. And then look what David says. May God punish me and do so severely if I let any of his males survive until morning. I'm taking this guy out. So David is going to repay evil for evil. That's the flesh. Jesus, the word of God, life in the kingdom of God, don't let evil overcome you. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. David's on a different path, but Abigail's on a path too. So when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off the donkey, knelt down with her face to the ground and paid homage to David. She knelt at his feet and said, the guilt is mine, my Lord, but please forgive but please let your servant speak to you directly, face to face. We're not going to talk about, we're going to talk to. Speak to you directly. Listen to the words of your servant. servant. And, and the words she says are so important in, in, in where we're going, right? She says, my Lord should pay no attention to this worthless fool, Nabal, for he lives up to his name and his name means stupid. Nabal's not only one decision away from stupid, he consistently is stupid, right? I mean, that's just the way we would see it. His stupidity is all he knows. I, your servant, did not see my Lord's young men whom you sent. So I was not aware of this offense, of this slight. Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, it is the Lord who kept you from participating in bloodshed, in vengeance, in revenge, and avenging yourself by your own hand. May your enemies and those who intend to harm you, my Lord, be like Nabal. And let this gift your servant brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive your servant's offense for the Lord is certain, and she reminds him of, his prom of God's promises. The Lord is certain to make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because he fights the Lord's battles. David, you don't have to fight this battle. God's got you. Throughout your life, may evil not be found in you. Now, David is moving toward evil. Remember, David's problem is not Nabal. David's problem is David. Matt's problem is not, is not out there. Matt's problem is in here, my flesh. Lord, deliver me from evil. May evil not be found in you, because that's where the problem is. Someone is pursuing you and intends to take your life. My Lord's life is tucked safely in the place where the Lord your God protects the living but he is flinging away your enemies lives like stones from a sling when the lord does for my lord all the good he promised you and appoints you ruler over israel another reminder david you're going to be king nabal can't interrupt that but you can and the evil in you can there will not be remorse or a troubled conscience for my lord because of needless bloodshed or my lord's revenge don't do it and when, she says, the Lord does good things for you, may you remember me, your servant. The second way that God makes a way for us to stay in communion with him is the people that God puts in our path. It's the people. We help answer the Lord's prayer of lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the real world, we help each other. 
We are part of each other's protection and deliverance. God works through the Abigails of this world, of the unnamed servants of this world. The New Testament says it this way, church, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Do you realize something God has done? Let's think about church for a minute. The church is the people of God. Let's get a vision of church that is biblical, not cultural. All right, the church is the people of God. So when you get born again, when you get saved, when you make Jesus your Lord, your Savior, your treasure, when you give Jesus the steering wheel of your life, God puts you in a church. He puts you in his people among his people, to do life with his people that we pray for, love, forgive, relate, correct, coach, admonish, help, encourage, etc. God puts us in a church. It's a great grace of God, the church is, to help deliver us from evil, to help lead us not into temptation. So as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, but especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Later on in Roman, or earlier in Romans, Paul says, let love one another deeply as brothers and sisters, not by biology, but by belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and the shed blood for, that he shed for us. Take lead in honoring one another. People are part of our perseverance. People, the church helps us live out our faith in the real world. The church helps us stay away from evil. The church helps us deal with the problem within my flesh. We help one another stay on the path. We help one another stay in communion and connection with God. Let's not think church is an hour a week. Let's not think church is just one worship service a week. Let's not think church is a building, an hour. Let's see church as people, a great grace God has given to help answer his own prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The church is like Abigail, stopping David from drifting away from God. Now in our church, one of the most powerful ways and potent ways that we try to practice this is through our small groups. And we've got small groups that meet to study the word of God. We've got special small groups called equipping groups that might be more topic-based like parenting or marriage. But we've got biblical community where we can meet together, pray for one another, help each other persevere in our faith journey and stay close to the Lord Jesus Christ. So this weekend at all of our campuses and you've got a chance maybe to take a next step or at least have a conversation about getting connected. And I want to say this, though. I I think in our culture, we have an aversion to people coaching or correcting us. And we don't see that in Scripture. We see, go talk, go rebuke, go admonish, go encourage, go correct, right? So let me say this, okay? A person who only affirms and sympathizes with us is not loving to us. They're actually indifferent to the life God has for us. What if Abigail showed up and said, David, I know exactly how you feel. I'm married to the guy. He's a jerk. Put that sword on. Give me one. I'm going with you. Now, David would feel justified in what he was about to do. He would feel validated in what he was about to do, but he would be about to depart from the life God had for him. That's not life in the family of God. 
So the third way that God makes a way for us to stay close to him is the warnings that God puts before us. There are warnings in scripture. And Abigail comes and warns David against the vengeance mentality, against the revenge, against the bloodshed, the, the, uh, the unnecessary bloodshed. And so part of when you read the Bible through time with God, as we've been reading the Bible together this week or these past couple of weeks through our sacred assembly devotionals, part of what we're gonna encounter in, in the word of God are the warnings that he puts before us. Sometimes God warns us through the godly counsel of godly people he puts around us, right? Like he did Abigail to David. And here's what we have to understand about warnings, okay? There's something in us that resists a warning. You, we started it with our parents, did we not? Can I get an amen, right? But and if you're raising a teenager, give me an amen, right? Uh, there's something about us that resists warnings, but let's recognize warnings come from the heart of a father, God who loves us, our father who is in heaven. And let's, let's acknowledge this. The warnings exist because the dangers are real. And dismissing the warning does not remove the danger. It actually increases it. Like if we're driving on a, mountain, on a road and we're about to come on one of those really sharp turns and there's a yellow sign, you know, 300 yards before we get there that says danger, sharp turn ahead. And someone's like, eh, and cuts the sign down. We've ignored the warning and we've now increased the danger because the, the person driving doesn't have that warning sign so they can slow down and adjust. So one of the ways God loves us and the people of God love us is we warn one another when we are about to move away from life in Christ. But then there's the other side of the warnings and the fourth way that God makes a way are the promises that he makes to us. God's word is full of promises. There's very specific promises that were made to David that are not applicable to you and I but there are incredibly specific promises that you and I can walk in, rest in, trust in, lean not on our own understanding, trust in the Lord with all your heart, right? And he will make your path straight. There's incredible promises that God has for us. Uh, in the life of David, he got, in, in the last three chapters, Jonathan repeats the promise, Saul repeats the promise, and Abigail repeats the promise. David, God has a plan for you. David, you're gonna be king. Question we should ask ourselves is what promise am I trusting in right now as I face a Nabal? What promise am I leaning on right now as I walk through cancer? What promise of God am I claiming, praying, trusting in every day as I lead a rebellious teenager or try to lead one? There's promises of God, people of God. It's one of the ways God makes a way. Now this whole story is a testimony to the abundance of God's grace. We can take one, two, and three, three and four, the details, the unseen providence of God working to make a way, the people of God, the warnings of God, the promises of God, they're all the abundance of God's grace. And there's another way we need to look at grace, church. I think when we sing about amazing grace, when we talk about amazing grace, we think about, man, there's more grace in God than sin in us, and praise the Lord for that, right? You can never, the mess you and I make never outruns or overshadows the mercy of God. That's where we find forgiveness. That's where we don't get condemnation. So there is more grace in God than sin in us or else none of us would stand here and have a chance in front of a holy, righteous God, right? But there's also another side to grace that we all need to receive and rest in and resupply ourselves with. And it is that God also gives grace to keep us close to him. So grace is not just for when you mess up. Oh my gosh, God, please forgive me. I'm so sorry that I sinned. I'm so sorry, God, please forgive me. I'm repentant. Yes, there's grace for that. There's also grace to keep you from that sin. 
and to keep your flesh from taking root and, and making a, or moving us in a direction that we would regret. And we have to see that. I think we celebrate so much the amazing grace of God that forgives us and, 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 and pardons us, but let's also be recipients of the grace God gives, one, two, three, and four in this story, to keep us in communion with him. God will not make us, but he will make a way for us to stay in fellowship with him. Now, the big question is, okay, is David receptive? He says to Abigail, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you to meet me today. He knows that this act, these four things that have come through Abigail, the behind the scenes workings, the promises, the warnings, the person of Abigail herself is from God. No burning bush, no miracle, just grace upon grace. May your discernment be blessed and may you be blessed. Today, you kept me from participating in bloodshed. You delivered me from evil. You helped lead me not into temptation. We could say it right this side of the, uh, in the New Testament and avenging myself by my own hand. You, I, I was gonna play the role of God Nabal, against Nabal and that's not my role. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord God of Israel lives, who prevented me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, Nabal wouldn't have had any males left by morning light. You were used by God to keep me close to God. God made a way. Then David accepted what she said, had brought him and said, go home in peace. I have heard what you said and have granted your request. So David stays close to God. He avoids a terrible act of violence, an unnecessary pitfall, an unnecessary sin because of the grace of God, one, two, three, and four. So here's a question for us. If this grace is available to us the same way it was to, to David, what are we missing? Why do non-Christians call us hypocrites? Why does Matt go from sacred assembly that frustration or Matt go into sin mode right after sacred assembly? Why do we have these great devotionals, these powerful words? And why do, is it so hard to keep ourselves from the evil that comes from within us? Well, the first one is just maybe we don't have awareness of God's ways. And I hope by the, by the presence of God here this weekend at all our campuses, those of you online, I hope God's made you aware of how he makes a way. Second reason, though, I don't think a lot of us are honestly open to correction. We're not open to correction. And, and, and when correction comes, maybe we get defensive. Maybe we leave. Maybe we're just like, eh, you know, who are you? And we start pointing the finger back at the other person. But we're just not open to God's correction. And then maybe for some of us too, we're not willing to be used by God to correct others. We're not gonna be Abigail. Even when we see our brother or sister headed down the path, the sword's on, we're going. Not my job, no, no, who am I to talk to David? I can't talk to David. But this is how God makes a way. This is how God makes a way. So, the story ends, Nabal dies and David marries Abigail. He found him a good woman. And you find, a, let me tell you something, guys. When you find a woman of God 
who will help you fight your sin battles with you? That's probably someone worth looking into about dating and or marrying. A little free marriage advice there this weekend, right? Praise the Lord. David learns or relearns that he does not have to be in control putting the sword on because God is in control. We see that God takes negatives in the real world and turns them into positives for his people. That's the story of our faith, is it not, church? Good Friday, innocent Jesus crucified, put in a tomb by an evil world with a conspiracy of the Roman government, the Jewish people, and the mob-like crowd. But if we don't have Good Friday, we don't get to Easter Sunday. He is risen. He is alive. He is the God who can bring good from evil. He is the God who can turn things around. He is the God that can be trusted in life in the real world. Let me close with three questions. First one is this. What are we doing with God's promises and warnings? Is there a warning God has been giving you, but you're just like, eh, I got it. I don't have to slow down. I can navigate that curve ahead. Is there a promise from God that you need to lean into? Maybe even memorize it, pray it, share it with your small group. Hey, pray this over my life. What are we doing with the, with the promises and warnings of God? Because these are two of the ways that God makes a way. Second question, are we open to being corrected? And in a position to receive it. Do I have biblical community? Am I an active, engaged member of a biblical-based, Christ-exalting church where people in that church love me enough to warn me and to remind me about God's best for me? And then are we willing to be the church to one another? And being the church to one another, we all have an idea of what that means. Man, that means somebody's gonna come visit me if I'm sick and in the hospital. Yes and amen. Man, that means if I submit a prayer request, people are gonna be faithful to pray for it. Yes and amen. That means I've got a place to send my kids for, you know, kids, Robert's kids, Robert's student ministry. Yes and amen. Man, that's the place I go to worship and, and receive biblical teaching. Yes and amen. But you know, what Abigail did in speaking to David, and she said, please listen. Remember she said it, please listen to my words, please listen to my words. We see that in the New Testament. And I think that is a clue for what it really means to be the church to one another. Let the message about Christ and all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. That part of being the church to one another is telling and reminding and speaking the word of God to one another. Not just me to you once a week, but you to each other, you at your dinner table, to your kids, to your spouse, to your wife, you in small groups, speaking the word of God to one another with all of its warnings, with all of its promises, with all of its principles, so we experience all of life in Christ. Ephesians says it this way, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. 
We will speak the truth in love. And, and, and so church, we, if we're going to be the church to one another, we have to know the word of God, love the word of God, and be courageous enough to speak the word of God to one another because we are not indifferent. We are loving people and we are part of the way God answers the prayer. Lord, lead us not into temptation. Lord, deliver us from evil. Rockbridge Community Church, let's be the church. If you don't have a church home and God is speaking to you, would you talk to us about becoming part of Rockbridge through our all-in process? If you are not in a circle with other brothers and sisters in Christ where you are walking together and keeping each other, helping each other persevere in the faith, would you consider a Rockbridge small group? Because God loves you and I too much. He won't make us, but he has and he will. Make a way for us to stay close to him, connected to him in life in Christ. Would you bow and pray with me? God, just have your way in our lives. We see that you make a way. You've made a way through your son and his blood and his death and his resurrection for us to be sons and daughters. And you make a way, God, in the real world for us to stay close to you. May we receive that grace in Jesus' name, amen.